Hi, and welcome to The Transect. Uh, this week we have a very special guest. Uh, we have uh, George Nicholas, uh, and with him, uh, for our regular crew, uh, you got me, uh, Cody. Sean P. Connaughton. And Ansars. And, uh, yeah, George has been kind enough to invite us into his home uh, to do a, a brief little Q&A. Uh, Sean's carrying this fat wad of notes, so I, I'm going to let him. It's, it's actually George's. Oh, that's just his CV? Yeah, it's like 40 pages. George! <laughs> Whoa! We're going to go line by line tonight yeah, yeah, and ask new, him. It's a new format. We're going to go line by line and ask him about everything that's on here. It's actually the new name of this podcast. Yeah. It's, uh, it's line by line. Dr. Sean P. And it's where we go. Uh, we take each line individually of all of your published works. And, uh, <laughs> just, just, just say, series. what's this? Oh, sorry. All right. Anyway, yeah, what's this? And is this, did this happen? Okay. I should introduce George, shouldn't I? Yes, yes. George, yeah. welcome. Thank you very much. Um, I, we'll give a little background for George. Uh, George P. Nicholas is a professor of archaeology in the Department of Archaeology at Simon Fraser University. He considers himself to be an anthropological archaeologist with a broad range of interests. Uh, some of his studies include archaeology and human ecology of wetlands in relation to hunter-gatherer societies worldwide, early post-glacial land use, especially in the northeastern United States, and the interior plateau of Western Canada, as well as the involving relationships between archaeology and indigenous peoples worldwide, which is how most people know George's work. From 1991 to 2005, George developed and directed SFU's Indigenous Archaeology Program on the Kamloops Indian Reserve, and from 2008 to 2016, he directed iPinch, which was a, a huge, massive international research grant focused on intellectual property issues and cultural heritage. Uh, co-directed and co-developed with uh, Julie Howell of Indiana University and Kelly Bannister as well from the University of Victoria. George has published numerous peer-reviewed articles, books, <laughs> and edited volumes, and public think pieces. He is a giant scholar in the field today. So, George, welcome. Thank you very much, boys. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Cody. <laughs> Go ahead with what? I, still, I'm, I feel a little bit... Uh, we're a little, a little shy. I'm, I'm a little shy. Yeah. Uh, for for listeners who don't know, I think well, George definitely taught me uh, my undergrad theory. Uh, did he? Did you take grad theory? No, I had it okay. with uh, one Dr. David V. Burley, mm. but George was <laughs> on my committee. Oh, Full nice. disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So. Um, what do What do you got for? Oh, origin stories. Origin story. Sorry, I totally, I totally blank. This is always my job, and I can't believe I forgot it. Um, origin stories. Uh, the beginning. The, the beginning. beginning. Uh, we like to start at the beginning. On the what, what was your uh, Batman's parents in the alley moment of archaeology? Well, I, I think Sean has heard this before. When I was about eight years old, the, there's family lore that I was sitting at the kitchen table at dinner with my parents and my, my younger brother, and I can't remember how it came about, but I think I had you know, announced to my parents that I wanted to become an archaeologist. And they said, well, that's great. <laughs> and then there was the but. <laughs> because to them, you know, archaeologists were basically relatively affluent white guys mm-hmm. who could go around exploring you know, the jungle and... and, and uh, make their way through Egypt and making these fabulous discoveries. But nonetheless, they supported me. And I, in fact, I went and did my archaeology field school 
the summer I graduated from high school and before I started at Franklin Pierce College. Mm. Oh, really? During and, a gap year? And that was, that was quite the experience, <laughs> to be an 18-year-old yeah. among 20-year-olds in the mid-1970s. <laughs> How did you find out about the field school? Well, I was looking at colleges at the time, you know, as, in the last year of high school. Mm-hmm. And I knew at that point that I wanted to go into archaeology, as, as I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And I, I found Franklin Pierce College. I had, um, had gone up earlier and met Howard Sargent, who was the archaeologist there. Mm. And he invited me to, you know, to uh, participate in the field school, which was, uh, I think, quite a, a, a concession on his part. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he took a chance on me, and uh, the rest is history, so to speak. Yeah. Were you looking at Franklin Pierce? Why the 14th president of the United States? Why was that the college that was calling out to you? It, it, <laughs> you went to high school in Massachusetts? In, in, this is in New Hampshire. Oh, no, no, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, high school in Connecticut. That's where I grew up. Oh, okay. Yeah. But then um, in Franklin Pierce College was about three and a half hours away in yeah. southern New Hampshire. And a small liberal arts, you know, uh, college in the middle of the woods, which was mm-hmm. just what I was yeah. looking for. Yeah, <laughs> you didn't want to stay in Connecticut at all. You didn't want to go to any of the big state schools. You were looking. For no, I, I wanted something that would, um, you know, be small enough to, uh, you know, allow me the freedom and, and allow me the uh, chance to really interact with with the faculty members there. And Howard Sargent was one of your early influences, and you did an honors thesis with him, which I'm kind of interested. You studied uh, Emotep the Third. Is your honors thesis? My my, <laughs> my initial interest was in in old world archaeology. Yeah, I mean, I grew up, you know, with National Geographic and mm-hmm. you know, Mr. Wizard science shows, and 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 all of those um, were strong influences pushing me towards a scientific kind of archaeology. Mm, the, the focus of the honors thesis was on paleopathology. Ooh. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So it? it was basically looking at certain manifestations of, uh, disease or, um, pathology between generations. Ah. So you were looking at multiple individuals. That's right. Huh. Cool. And, that's really as far far as it went in terms of that field of interest. Mm-hmm. When I, I finished my master's, the, my, my honors thesis, I then uh, started to look at schools to go into classical archaeology. Mm-hmm. Is that why you chose Missouri? That's why I chose Missouri. And mm-hmm. you studied under Bill Marquardt. Well, that's that's the second part of the, okay. the story. Okay, we'll go to the first part. So <laughs> I applied to the classics department, and I'm accepted. Yeah. And I get into my Land Rover. Right, 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 right. And I drive. I'm serious. <laughs> I know. I know you have a Land Rover. It's the first, my first Land Rover. <laughs> okay, okay. Drive halfway across the country. And I start, uh, you know, taking whatever classes, you know, as a first-year classic right. student. And this basically consisted of going to the museum and drawing, in you know, 18th and 19th Dynasty vases. Yeah, yeah, you know, and this is you know classic Flinders Petrie. Yeah, you know, right, looking yeah. at the the changing styles mm-hmm. of pottery and design over mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. and within two weeks, I said, "This is stupid." <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I I basically just transferred over to the anthropology department. Yeah, 
Yeah. And there I started working with Ray Wood and, oh, and Bill okay. Marquardt. Okay, yeah. The focus of my, my uh, master's thesis was on uh, uh, useware analysis of lithic tools, mm-hmm. correlating uh, changes in tool type and presumed tool function to uh, 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 movement of the Prairie Peninsula Oak Hickory Forest ecotone. Mm-hmm. over in the course of the archaic. Okay. And did you like Bill? Yeah. I mean, I worked more with Ray Wood, though, than, than with, with, with Bill. Okay. But, I mean, Bill was, was certainly an influence in terms of, you know, helping to direct, you know, the, 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 uh, my thesis. Mm-hmm. And from there, see, this is kind of interesting because it's not, I, I'm, I'm trying to get, because George has a background in wetland, like environmental ecology and sort of archaeology, and, yeah, and there's an interesting period here between between uh, his PhD and his master's, and there's a there's an interesting publication you wrote, and I'm wondering if it was sort of gives us insight into why you enjoyed the wetlands. It was a an article written in the 1980 Yankee, the Queer, the duck. queer duck. Yeah, <laughs> it, was a, it was a piece of fiction George oh. wrote, and mm-hmm. and it was about this duck that kind of stayed behind. And I was curious, was that kind of insight into you getting interested in wetland? First of all, what's the Yankee? Yeah, what is, okay, yeah, back up. So it's Yankee Magazine. It's like yeah. a regional, you know, magazine for the Northeast. Okay. Yeah. You know, with fiction and nonfiction and um, everything. everything. Yeah. yeah. Huh. The Kennedys read it. Yeah. They, it was big. Kitty, kitty, but yeah. <laughs> well, I moved back to New Hampshire from Missouri because Howard Sargent had then been, been working for the New Hampshire Water Commission as their archaeologist. He had mm. left Franklin Pierce College. Okay. Mm. And he was stepping away from that position and convinced me to take it. So I came back to take on that position. Um, okay. But first to uh, teach for a year at Franklin Pierce College. So I, did a field, I, did my, I taught my first field school there. Nice. And then I went into the, the uh, Water Commission archaeologist position for a year. Hmm. But I was also living um, <laughs> in, in a small town yeah. named Kentuckuk okay. on uh, Pleasant Lake at a, uh, a place I rented called Mad Squirrel Farm. Okay. It came with his name? No. <laughs> no, I added the name. Oh, okay. Okay, got it. <laughs> the, I mean, the nice thing about living in the middle of woods is no one can, you know, see you make a damn fool of yourself. Right. Yes. <laughs> so it was a chance for me to, um, uh, you know, not only do some teaching and do some work for, you know, doing uh, uh, con- uh, consulting work or, you know, cultural resource management, mm-hmm. but also to write, uh, because when I was growing up, I was actually spending some time trying to decide if I wanted to become an archaeologist or, you know, uh, f- take an English major and, and, and go into writing. That's eerie, yeah. Well, what's a commonality with a lot of archaeologists we find? There's a sort of a, we've talked about this before a few times, of a sort of a struggling poet or a writer that wants to emerge out of an archaeologist. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the connection there is yet. Yeah, like we've had a number of guests that have said like, yeah, I was going to get an English major and then I decided it wasn't my thing. Archaeology has stronger calling or something, but yeah. There's an opportunity for narrative form in archaeology. You can you can express some of those same desires in the archaeological format. 
Yeah, and I think George's later work speaks to that, but we'll, we'll focus on where you are right now. So in any case, that's, <laughs> that's, where, where, that's where the, uh, the queer duck story okay. came from when I was living at Mad Squirrel Farm. Was there a duck that stayed behind? Yes. <laughs> was, was there an old man that tended to it? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then from there, you chose Amherst. Is there a reason why? Is that from working no, in the no. watershed? No, you, no. You're, you're, you're I... skipping ahead. Oh, part two. Part two. Sorry. Part two. Oh. Um, wait, I forgot where the part one and part two came from. <laughs> I was, uh... Oh, wetland, uh, wetland oh, right. archaeology. Okay. I want to know how you <clears throat> got an interest because your previous studies haven't really... Right. So it was actually during that tenure at the New Hampshire Water okay. Commission yeah. that, you know, I was going around checking locations um, where water facilities were going to be built, mm-hmm. you know, doing you know, survey and assessment and so on. And there was one area that was really on the margin of a wetland, but also within the basin of a former gla- glacial lake. And that's where okay. all of that begins to, to gel. And this was, was, was a research interest that was um, facilitated by Howard Sargent because they're still working right. closely with him. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's where that interest developed. You know, the, the general interest in, in environmental archaeology when I was at uh, University of Missouri. Mm-hmm. And then it, it, it began to take a more ecological orientation mm-hmm. uh, when I was in New Hampshire. Um, I left... New Hampshire. I spent a year at Phillips Exeter Academy, basically as a research assistant, working with a couple of colleagues who got a grant to do the analysis of the of, of the Smith site, a huge site. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was doing the lithic analysis for that. Yeah, I never knew this. I didn't know you had such a hardcore lithics background. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, And then from there, uh, Rob Bonnickson, who was at the University of Maine at Orono had read one of the um, papers on glacial lakes and archaeology that I published in the New Hampshire Archaeologist. And he invited me up to Maine to direct a Corps of Engineers project in far northern Maine. So I worked with a couple of archaeologists, um, I'm sorry, a a couple of geologists, Mm -hmm. as well as Brad Lepper, who ends up at the University of Ohio. And he's uh, uh, one of the leading scholars in um, uh, Hopewell today. Okay, yeah. So that was a really interesting project. And then while I was there, I started to take courses. Uh, they had a special PhD program that I started in, but uh, pulled out of when uh, we realized it just wasn't going to work in terms of this kind of special arrangements, yeah. um, PhD kind of thing. Yeah. And so I wanted to go on to my, my PhD and uh, ended up going down to University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Mm-hmm. And did you know that you wanted to study with Dina Dickhouse and Martin Wolves? No, it was, it was one of these situations where you apply. Yeah. And the, the faculty, you know, review your uh, application and then, you know, yes, someone I... will choose you. Oh, wow. Choose so you, to, you were you chosen. Know, um, choose to supervise you. And I'd actually met Dina. Yeah, um, she was up visiting uh, the university, uh, visiting Dave Sanger at the University of Maine. Sanger, okay. So I had yeah. a, you know, a brief introduction to her, and she had a sense of what I was doing. Mm-hmm. So uh, for whatever reason, you know, she um, uh, chose me to supervise. Yeah, 
Yeah, she was. She's quite. A, she influenced a lot of archaeologists. A lot of people from your cohort too. That are. She was a. Yeah, Ken Sassman yeah. And, and my wife Catherine Carlson. That's right. And, yeah. and many others certainly. Yeah. Oh. So what was this cohort at? So at the UMass Amherst. Who was in the cohort? Um. So it was Ken and Catherine. Um, Mike Nassani. Yeah. Right. Uh, John right. Cross. Um, Leslie Shaw. Uh, Brenda Baker, Dean Seda. Uh, there was probably oh, the, probably fifteen of us or so who you know who hung out. Pretty um, tight knit group. Pardon? Pretty tight knit group. I mean, more or less. Yeah. Um, it, it was a really formative um, uh, department. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, I would, if I could, I would move back, you know, there in some sort of fantasy. That it would still was still the it, it is still the same as it used to be. What was it about it that had such draw and appeal? It, it was just a a a, a really tight knit, really collegial, mm. really multifaceted department. Mm-hmm. Uh, so folks were you know this was an anthropology department. So mm-hmm. you know folks were doing everything all over the world. Mm-hmm. And the, the, there's a funny part to this, and that is before I went to UMass, you know, I'd go to some of the regional meetings, regional archaeology meetings in the Northeast, mm-hmm. and folks used to joke about you, Mark's Amherst. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, yeah. I had this yeah. real yeah. orientation with John Coles and um, uh, Bob Painter and, and, mm-hmm. and several others. And I had no, <laughs> you know, it was, it was a big joke yeah. um, in, in a sense. But little did I know that not for taking courses, but perhaps just for the overall atmosphere, you know, I would end up, you know, being strongly influenced mm-hmm. um, and and really drawn to a, a Marxist oriented archaeology. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> no, I got some of that from Ken, too, when I was a student at Florida. It seemed that it did permeate through the, the students that were there at the time. Mm-hmm. But I hear that, I mean. When you reflect back on that time, you you found it was very supportive to you, like your own sort of development as a student too. And, and is that something that you'd like to see in all universities when they're mentoring young students coming up? It seems like that was really like a really special time for you in that period. It, it was a special time, but it was also a terrifying time <laughs> because these were some of the most most formative mm-hmm. thinkers and doers in. Not only American archaeology, but but archaeology in general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Dina Dinkos was the um, president of the SAA. Wow. She was editor of American Antiquity. Yeah, and uh, and actually, Ray Wood at the University of Missouri had those two same roles. Mm-hmm. So, trying to get anything to them in terms of writing was um, a process. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was a rather tense, yeah. um, you know, moment when she hands you back that particular chapter and you can see at a distance, yeah. you know, it's covered with different colors, yeah. <laughs> not yeah. just the black yeah. and white that you submitted. It. No, but it, it was, um, you know, really uh, something I, I appreciated then. Um, and, and certainly do now. Well, it served you well. You ended up, how many years were you the editor of the Canadian Journal of Archaeology? It was quite... Um, I think quite? six or so. Did those early influences really give you the chops to sort of like take on that role later in life? Well, they, they did. And part of it has to do with, you know, my, my interest in writing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, being put through the ringer by, by, by Dina and others. Mm-hmm. And knowing that, uh, you know, from, from hearing about other students, undergrads or grad students, that they would get back work from their instructors and there would simply be a grade. Mm. without any substantive comments so you don't know or they didn't know how do you improve your writing yeah and i was fortunate that that all of my um uh advisors all of my supervisors you know took the time took the effort to really you know provide that kind of detailed assessment of my writing uh the organization of ideas um Mm -hmm. and all all of that you know stuff yeah i I mean what do you guys i mean i still feel that's that's really valuable to, to have that kind of feedback because how can you ever learn and grow? And it's something I see students, students too, like to take the time to read their writing and give them the feedback because how else can you understand where you're making mistakes and keep repeating the same mistakes? The writing still mm-hmm. seems to be, mm-hmm. it's always a process, right? It's always a long haul. Yeah, even in like the like the consulting world, it's still mm-hmm. like uh, I get a lot of feedback. Uh, hey, you could make this a little more uh I don't know, like lean is a lot. Oh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. But proponents like it too. They like to read clean, clear prose that, you know, gets to the issues. And all good writing, whether it's, I don't like to think of it as technical or academic. I think good writing should just be good writing no but matter what. But it goes through the grinder, the process, mm-hmm. <laughs> the dipping of red ink. Yeah, the, tri- like the, the tribal scar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sean and I have got some some good ones. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I have some classics in the margins. <laughs> yeah, now, of course I haven't, you know, talked about your writing styles. Oh, uh, you want you want to talk about our because, writing styles? Yeah, go ahead, George. In your, in your dissertation, <laughs> uh, you know, Sean, in chapter four. <laughs> you remember that chapter? Yeah, don't you, Sean? that was a beautiful written piece of work. <laughs> you're, you're talking a lot about how much you've improved, Sean, with a man who knows exactly how much you've improved. Directly <laughs> next to you. And Cody. Oh, oh we, we don't even need to go there. <laughs> your term paper in archaeological theory. Now, remember the beginning of the semester that I said these are called term papers, not weekend before papers? Oh, snap. Everybody (laughs) says that. Did you not like chapter four? (laughs) You you didn't like the active. No, I had this first person active voice. Did you go into a deep, like, uh, ayahuasca? Like a like, Michael Tausig, like, yeah. kind of, like, performance, the performance <laughs> art. You actually had a video insert <laughs> inserted into it. was a link in the chapter. And George, George wasn't a fan. He's like, yeah. sometimes things need to be written in the past tense. Yeah. Do you still feel that way? Well, I mean, Dave and I had agreed, you know, that we would switch between being the, the good committee member and the bad committee member. Oh, that's a good but you plan. could never figure out which was which. No, I couldn't, actually. Well, well <laughs> and I thought I did when I first came in. And he's like, you're not going to cry, are you? <laughs> when he shook my hand. <laughs> so I don't know. Who was good cop? Were you the good cop? You were the bad cop. I'm always the good cop. You're always a good cop? Always. All right. <laughs> Um, one of the questions I wanted to field uh, was when we were when we were taking theory, the, George had like a really level handed approach to, uh, to, you know, the various uh, units that you have to teach, like the various components of archaeological theory. Uh, but now that we've got you out of the classroom and on the record, um, <laughs> yeah, where where do you really stand on this? Because it was always very diplomatic in the classroom. 
Well, if, if we step back and look at the hermeneutics <laughs> that flow wow. through this dialogue, this discourse between wow. these multiple wow. perspectives and voices, <laughs> mm-hmm. we realize that most archaeologists don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is, that what, is that the dirt that you really wanted to get to here? That makes me feel so much better. This expose yeah. of contemporary archaeology. Do they really not know what they're talking about? How much do you think is really just misinformed, misapplied theory. Misdirection. Illusion. Illusion. (laughs) Well, if we look at archaeology in the South Pacific, Sean. Yes. Sean's working in the South Pacific. I've worked there. (laughs) And we look at, you know, the theoretical premises that flow through your dissertation. How would you answer your own question here? Oh, I mean, mine's really implicit. It's sort of an experiential woven woven into this, like, it's like a tapestry of just my... the timbre of your voice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think that answers your question, George. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. When I, you get it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, theories are just hats, and, and but they and they it, and they really do inform how you look at a data set and how you you look at trying to find solutions to problems or questions. But I, I, where were you trying to go with your question, Cody? Were you well, really? No, I was just like, I started reading. Which uh, one's the best? Yeah, okay, yeah, like, are there some theories that are bunk? Like, you were at Missouri. Mm-hmm. Were they evolutionists there? Were they that sort of that Donnellian sort of, like, Dunnell vision kind of thing going on when you were there? I mean, it was a strong cultural historical orientation, mm-hmm. and that's the foundation of archaeology then and is t- still today. Yeah. But I was also there at a time when, you know, the new archaeology was really starting to take off. Yeah. And none of us at the time realized you know, that this was, in a sense, a momentous sea change, in a sense. Not that it's replacing culture history, but that it was adding this this new layer mm-hmm. on top. And the same thing with, you know, what happens in, in the late 80s with, you know, Ian Hodder and Hodder, others. Yeah. You know, but ultimately, I think we're looking at, you know, the same thing, but at different scales. You mm-hmm. know, so when we're talking about, you know, culture history, it's simply, you know, the, the, the series of events and so on that have happened over time, whether you look at this in an evolutionary way or mm-hmm. uh, focusing simply on changes in material culture in response to different um, climatic or other conditions. But between, you know, processional and post-processional archaeology, there are primarily sca- scalar differences. So we're looking at, with processional archaeology, how populations, how groups mm-hmm. are responding in a very broad way. If you're looking at this from a more post-processional perspective, you're looking at it at the level of, of individuals mm-hmm. and how they experience life around them versus you know, how groups are reacting to different kinds of opportunities or stimuli. But, I mean, you're dealing with the same phenomena. Mm-hmm. but we are simply bringing different questions and yeah. different points of focus. Mm-hmm. What are the more interesting questions to ask, do you think? In, in looking at, what, the archaeological record or looking at this, the, the, you know, archaeological change historically? <sighs> you, an- you answer my question with a question. That's such an old <laughs> classic move. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's like Socrates over here, guys. <laughs> well, well, the thing that I was, one of the, one of the takeaways uh, from, from like, from from your class, but also like like going forward and in the workplace right now, like archaeology needs to serve 
a social cause, at least in like the environment where, where I am right now. Like it, the questions themselves are important, but like as a consultant, we're mostly just gathering data and it's, it's my, what I would like to do the most is to tie that to like, like a social thing for somebody else. Like I want, I want the, the archeology span I do to improve things for other people, but it's, uh, it's often very difficult to do that, uh, in a, like a consulting kind of framework. And I don't know, it's hard to not get like frustrated with that. And, uh, yeah. And I know it's, I know it's just like, that's also a hat in a, in a way, like the, the social, are you trying to talk about doing consulting in the larger socio-political climate and trying to find a way to make the archaeology that you do meaningful and relevant to not only yourself, but the communities well, whose heritage you're taking care of? Uh, yeah, yeah. Or being, being at, I mean, I should rephrase that actually, who, because maybe we got to pull back on it. I mean, there's a lot, sorry, it's a bigger, it's what I have, fuck, I messed up. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. It's just like, cause yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm interested in right, right now is, is like. The Marxist revolution. Well, <laughs> it's like no it's it, it's just more about like if this if the most important thing we can do with the data is improve someone else's life that seems to like in my like like ethical kind of box that seems to be the thing that like we should do mm-hmm. but i don't know it's that's also like it's hard to reconcile with that just being like a theoretical hat versus and and what are you improving and for whom exactly yeah like well, yeah, the questions of the, the existential questions of archaeology about like why is this a thing that is worth doing? Who who is this benefiting? Those those kinds of questions. Mm. Although I forgot what my original question was there. <laughs> <laughs> totally lost it. Well, I mean, you, you know, you make a number of good points here, but I think the, the the simplest and the best thing to do is simply take theory out of the equation. You're talking about archaeological practice. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And one thing I realized a long time ago is that theory permeates the fabric of archaeology. It's everything that we do has, you know, a theoretical um, aspect to it, whether it's classification or, or whether it is site sampling or, mm. you know, more, familiar, more familiarly um, site interpretation. And we can pull a particular, you know, set of theories out to help us interpret that. But we could also just ignore theory entirely and go about our business with asking questions in terms of, you know, what were people doing here? Um, Let's look at their economics. Let's look at their, you know, gender and and so on. Now, all that is still informed by theory, Mm -hmm. but we're not, we're not, we've, when we're talking about theory, we've we've stepped back Mm -hmm. from the process of archaeology. Simply so we could we could have a better understanding of trends over time in uh, in modes of interpretation or uh, how archaeology has responded to social and political forces um, you know of of the day. But ultimately, you know, it's simply you and you know the heritage objects or heritage sites. You're either uh, you know exploring those out of your your own interest or it's part of your job doing heritage management or whatever the case is. Something that guides, you know, my work as an archeologist are, are, are three points of, of reference that's, that speak to what you were, you know, brought up a few minutes ago. 
And this is something that I think is essential to, to really ask yourself every day as an archaeologist. Uh, why do we do archaeology? For whom do we do it? And how best can it be done? Mm -hmm. And that really encapsulates this whole project of archaeology. You know, we could dig up uh, all the sites in the world. We could find all these artifacts. And the question then may be, so what? Mm -hmm. You know, does anyone benefit from this mm -hmm. outside of archaeologists? And the answer is generally, well, not many people <laughs> yeah. do. Yeah. You yeah. know, yes, you've got objects you put in museums, and you could tell people, this is what these things mean. If it's their heritage, you know, that, that strikes a certain resonance. But other than that, I think you're right that archaeologists have a responsibility. Uh, it's a responsibility that really comes with age. And, and, and I mean that in two ways. One is that um, contemporary archaeology is, is now more tuned than ever to this notion of responsibility as a discipline. Uh, whether you want to frame it as archaeologists are stewards of the past or the interpreters of the past or we... Um, you know, helped the public to understand what that past is and what it means. Conversely, you could say archaeologists are the gatekeepers of the past, and we are the ones who dole out information. Um, and that is something that, you know, we, we can look at through a Marxist lens or, you know, a critical lens. Mm -hmm. But the other aspect of this age um, um, perspective is it also comes with the maturity of, of, of the pr practitioners. That is, you start doing archaeology because it is so much fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Going out and discovering things and, you know, hacking your way through the jungle and finding golden, golden idols with eyes of green jade and, and all of that. But as you get older and more experienced, um, you realize that there really has to be more to it than simply this discovery. You know, there, there, there's this mm -hmm. question of, well, what does this really mean? Why is this important? Why am I spending my career or why are you spending your career, you know, pursuing such esoteric knowledge when, you know, we look at the world around us and there's, you know, there's starvation, there's warfare, there's, you know, class conflict and all of this and nothing that we're doing for the most part, you know, really makes a difference there. Now, of course, there are exceptions, and this is something we're seeing with, um, you know, when archaeology is done with uh, and by and for the mm -hmm. descended communities, mm -hmm. uh, especially those who have been uh, bereft of their own heritage for, you know, for centuries, especially in settler countries. Mm -hmm. You know, they've been dispossessed. They've had, you know, loss of land, loss of language, uh, loss of sovereignty, and whether they've gone through the residential school, whether they have been moved to a different part of the country, uh, their heritage is a touchstone for you know, who they are and where they're going. So archaeology here has a huge role to play. It's only one that in the last you know, two or three decades has, um, has emerged in, 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 mm -hmm. in this way of... Um, uh, addressing social responsibility, amongst other things. Yeah, I want to follow that thread, because I think that's what was at the heart of your question, Cody. I think you were trying to get out, 
you know, George, obviously you've written on this subject. You've <clears throat> talked about decolonizing archaeology. You had transformative experiences when you were in Kamloops running the indigenous archaeology program there. Um, you're sharing a story a couple weekends ago at the archaeology forum in Kamloops about that. I, I think Cody was trying to get at the nuts and bolts is if you're if you're thinking about you kind of talked about, you know, archaeology was a good for and you compare it. But when you're talking about the Senate communities and you think about who controls archaeology in British Columbia, you see it as a statecraft and who are, you say, gatekeepers. They're almost like they're controlling it. How do you see, let's say consultant archaeologists, that's, that's not academics, but how do you see consultants kind of going through day by day changing the commercial world internally? Like how can it be done to sort of decolonize archaeology within sort of the capitalistic commercial model? Is it possible day in and day out? Now, I, I just, I love, I love this question because I, it took, it took uh, leaving the academic world and joining the commercial world to make me a Marxist, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's a tough question, yeah, I know. No, it's, well, it's not a tough question. It's a good question, mm-hmm. but it's, <clears throat> uh, there's a lot to it. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to, to answer this quickly. Right. Um, but I can, you know, speak to a couple aspects to it. And one is that, that um, consulting archaeology, CRM, heritage-related archaeology, mm-hmm. has, in a sense, gotten a really bad rap. That it, you know, emerged in the 1970s as a way to identify, preserve, evaluate heritage sites, primarily Native American sites in, mm-hmm. in, in, and First Nations sites uh, um, when we're looking at North America. Within the last decade or so, it has turned into this behemoth, this uh, all-encompassing entity that, you know, is now responsible for, what, 90% or more of all archaeology that is done in in North America and comparably um, in in other other locations. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, this is a really good thing because you're seeing more archaeology done than ever before or that could ever be done before. And you're having explorations of, of ideas in both heavily populated, uh, exploration of areas in heavily populated areas or mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere that would not have been looked at unless someone came along with you know, research funds and you know, the ability to... Um, you know, mount a particular project there. Um, so that's been a really good thing. On the other hand, and this gets back to your question, Cody, who's benefiting from this? And, you know, the sad answer is virtually no one. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got the clients who are benefiting because it allows them to, to tick off that box. Mm-hmm. And you've got, you know, the archaeologists benefiting because it provides them with an income. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, some degree of, of uh, new information about, you know, the archaeological record, if they are allowed to publish it or mm-hmm. to speak about it. And that's not always the case because you have the client claiming proprietary information or, you know, the consulting company having restrictions on what you can and cannot say. The majority of archaeologists don't know anything about the archaeology that is being done in their area unless they have access to those reports, which isn't always the case. And sometimes uh, they've been really difficult to access, you know, the notorious gray literature. Mm -hmm. 
What about the public? The public who's ultimately paying for this, they are getting virtually nothing. And that is where the real problem is. It's not just the descendant communities, whomever they are, First Nations or mm-hmm. Mennonite or um, you know, Chinese communities from, from the Gold Rush era. It, it's the general public. And this has a really detrimental effect because um, in, in North America and other settler countries, the dominant society is from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And today you're talking to a landowner in British Columbia and you say, well, if you want to build this, this house here or a, uh, an addition onto your, um, onto your property, you've got to pay for an archaeological assessment. Mm-hmm. And I've seen too many instances where they turn their frustration and anger about the situation onto the First Nations, mm-hmm. when in fact we're dealing with uh, provincial legislation, the Heritage Conservation Act, that mandates this. So the public, because they're not understanding how and why archaeology is getting done throughout the province through heritage management projects, Um, They don't don't understand the situation. They don't don't understand the value of this. They're getting nothing Mm -hmm. back. They might see a news clip, um, you know, on on the evening news. Uh, They may read something in the newspaper saying, gee, this is interesting. It's the oldest. It's the rarest. It's the whatever. But that's just a a passing um, uh, point of interest. So I think that to make things better, you know, all of us need to do a better job, whether we're academic archaeologists, whether we're uh, heritage management archaeologists. Yeah, because that's on us. We're not doing the job of providing that education to the public. If you think about the Grace Islet issue with uh, the, the, the homeowner being allowed to develop, even though what, there was like 23, 25 burials on the island. On the islet, on Grace, and, and the Grace Islet, and 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 and, 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 and the branch, the archaeology branch, the province allows it to go ahead, right? I mean, you wonder, well, how does that play? How, how's that even possible? Um, how's that take into the Senate community's feelings and concerns and sensitivities over it, as well as how does that get played in the media? I mean, you did some work on this, so to, to shed some light on it, but the most of the archaeology that you're saying, a lot of people don't know. How do we, as professionals, get out there so we can have those conversations? outside of like a dinner party where somebody goes, oh, that's cool. Dig dinosaurs. Yeah, I mean, archaeologists tend not to talk to people. I mean, yeah. the, the joke <laughs> is that archaeologists are anthropologists who don't like talking to people. They, yeah. you know, they're interested in cultural diversity. They're interested in material culture. Mm-hmm. But whether it's shyness or, you know, whatever. Um, and that's not a bad thing. But it, it becomes a bad thing when we feel uncomfortable or unable Mm-hmm. to talk to members of the public and say, this is what, what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is why it matters. And, and, you know, to answer questions. I mean, you know, the public has, you know, really good questions about, you know, how the people live in the past, but too often we just brush them off. Mm-hmm. And otherwise all that's left is fear about the process itself and how it can be detrimental to mm-hmm. their aims in life, which may involve adding additions to their house some days. They have that fear, and they disengage with the process, or it turns into anger or aggression towards descendant communities. Mm-hmm. And this came up at the Art Forum quite a bit, which we were all at, except for Cody. Um, yeah, where were you? I'd like to publicly shame him. <laughs> <laughs> Public shame received. <laughs> and people like Joanne Hammond and all the archaeologists in Kamloops who are now mm-hmm. publishing newspaper articles, and I thought that was really interesting about 
uh, engaging the public in a more positive way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it takes it takes effort. It takes um, a different kind of writing, mm -hmm. um, you know, where we, 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 we shed ourselves of the jargon. Mm -hmm. uh, we write simple um, or we write more simply without talking down to yeah. people. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I've read too many archaeological reports that I have a hard time getting through. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, to write in plain English, but also to, you know, to engage in the public and to get them excited. Um, this is something I've done in the past. And in fact, I just started doing it again, uh, writing for the conversation. Um, and it's a lot of fun, mm -hmm. but it, it's also so valuable because if we're trying to affect change relative to uh, making people appreciate heritage values, especially heritage that's not their own. I mean, I could write all the academic papers, you know, in the world, and it's not going to make a difference. <laughs> but you start writing for yeah. the public, you start, or, or, or podcasts or blogs or whatever, mm -hmm. and you are moving from an audience of like-minded people to, you know, the community, the, to the larger community, and that's where you could have a real difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, we need to fill that void, I think, completely. We haven't done a good enough job of that. And we don't even have public intellectuals in anthropology anymore. I mean, I can't really think of too many. Like, you think of Margaret Mead and and how um, prominent she was during her day. Uh, I even think of a couple like David Graeber, maybe a few others like Nan was it Nancy Shepherd Hughes. Mm -hmm. But we're actively engaging the... Uh, actively engaging the public and the media outside yeah, of it going to different audiences trying to, to gather that audience but i i can't see of a lot of and the other side of that is like a lot of uh anthropological figures or archaeological figures that do engage the public like super broadly get talked down by their peers who say oh you know they're they've decided to sell out their hacks now they're mm -hmm. just they're writing you know whatever for for the money and like wait like wade davis gets a lot of flack doesn't he <laughs> Well, like, I have nothing against him. I love Wade Davis. But, uh, yeah, like, yeah, it's just like, oh, he's writing, like, his books are in chapters. He's not a real <laughs> yeah. And how do we make, like, how do we making it so uninteresting? It's like the most fascinating feeling in the world. Yeah. We continually just, just churn it up into this dry, uh, yeah, gray literature that's, like, even archaeologists are uninterested by it. Yeah, it's terrible. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be this hard. Well, I mean, how? I mean, you know, year three, young and and coming archaeologists. <laughs> yeah. How are you dealing with it? Oh, Whether man. you're actually dealing with it in in, in what you're doing, or um, the need that you feel that is, um, you're looking for a means to make it happen. I find it happening like just on a day to day level when I'm. Uh, talking to people who are directly involved in the cultural heritage management system that is getting a permit for doing work on an archaeological site. And the conversation begins with a lot of fear and uncertainty about what the process means for them specifically. But I try to clarify that, and I get really excited, probably overexcited, and a little nerdy about uh, what's going on, the types of materials that we're finding, and why this is a good thing, and why you shouldn't be afraid of it. It may cost a little bit of money to do things correctly, but... Overall, I find that actually works quite well because I've never met anybody who is truly uninterested by archaeology. Just the idea that there's 
thousands and thousands of years of human history behind us. People don't think about that every day. So if you mm -hmm. engage them on that, it ends up being a really positive conversation. But that's just day-to-day -day engagement. How many people do I talk to? Probably less than four people a week. What about you, Cody? Well, uh, yeah, I'm kind of in the, sh the same boat as Ian. I, I, I feel like I've gotten lucky lately, and a lot of these commercial projects I've been working on have been in public parks. And there's just a lot mm. of pedestrians in public parks, and they're mm -hmm. super curious about what's going on. And uh, I like it's a little bit frustrating because I'm not allowed to tell them exactly what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. uh, that again being proprietary information. That uh, and like also there's there's like an ethical issue because I don't want to encourage like looting. Like a lot of the the reasons why we don't tell people what we're doing is not just client, it's also like out of respect for, for First Nations and their heritage. And we don't want to like, without their permission, expose where, you know, their heritage is. Uh, so it's like, it's a, it's, those conversations are so difficult. They can be very rewarding, but they're, they are very difficult. Hmm. I, um, this is your podcast, George. You're not supposed to ask us questions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, 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 that's a good question. Like I, one way I, I do it, um, I teach, um, I'm not full-time anywhere, I teach at, like on the faculty and department of anthropology at Kwantlen Polytechnic. So I look at, I teach a lot of first-year courses, and I like that because I know not a lot of students are going to go into anthropology and archaeology, but there are some. But I feel mm -hmm. like that's an audience that actually introduce them to these ideas, to think about things differently. Yep. That's one public, I think that is a public service. We can transact, but I don't think anybody listens to that. Yeah, we have this podcast we're trying to do as a, a sort of a little startup thing. We got thing. a new listener, George. Yeah, we got a new listener, barely. <laughs> this is an avenue for that. The other avenue is I'm, I am, it's kind of nerdy and personal, but I'm, I am trying to write a non, uh, a public book on sort of like archaeology and sort of sort of this ethnographic self thing and dealing with these issues and day-to-day -day as we do as consultants because it's a weird world and how do you sort of like tell stories and talk about it sort of get people to think about it differently. So that's one way. But you're right. There's um, in the, uh, teach going. Uh, Cody and I have done this. We've gone to schools. There's other ways. I mean, it seems like schools always seem to be a place, whether it's elementary schools or university or dealing with people in the park and the public. If people stop by your sites, mm -hmm. but you're right. I mean, how do you broadcast? How do you amplify the narrative to sort of bring this soapbox without being preachy? Because nobody wants to listen to that. Mm -hmm. No one wants to be condemned and, and, and talked down to, as you mentioned. You need a, a blockbuster film that is uh, starring oh, Tom Hardy, where he is, you know, just a, a down on his luck uh, consulting archaeologist trying to, to make it. And uh, uh, that'll really get everybody. Yeah, fight and fight the good fight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, well, actually, this kind of segues to a couple of questions I have. Um, at, at Simon Fraser University, there's a Heritage Resource Management Program, right? And you're part of that, right, George? Mm -hmm. And you guys are actually taking in students. It's a new program. Do you th that are working in the private sector and, and, and going to school in their free time in the evenings and weekends and, and trying to balance school life and professional life, do you think that program is going to provide those students, uh, is it going to transform them in how they practice archaeology? Do you think they'll come out of it with a different mind and different tools to maybe hopefully change corporations if they work for corporations wherever they may work to sort of drive internal change? Is that is that like a philosophical goal not not directly i mean okay. it, it's there but you know to look at this pragmatically it's you know looking at you know the many 
practicing archaeologists out there who lack a graduate degree, mm-hmm. which puts them at a disadvantage for holding a permit in some areas, mm-hmm. for uh, you know other things that would you know allow them to move forward mm-hmm. within their companies or or otherwise. But these students are coming in with real-world experience, and some of them have several decades of experience. I mean, I'm just in awe of how well you know, some of these students can articulate really complex issues when it comes to you know, the interface of heritage and government and you know, community perceptions and so on. Mm-hmm. What we're doing is giving them the credentials you know, that they need to, uh, you know, further their careers. But at the same time, we are uh, giving them uh, an opportunity to share ideas amongst members of their cohort, to engage in discussions um, that they might not otherwise have about ethics and practice and and uh, the limitations uh, or whatever of, of you know, heritage management and legislation and so on, to also also give them confidence mm-hmm. in their knowledge of legislation, of ethics, of research design, of business practices, mm-hmm. to um, introduce them to uh, case studies or um, new ways or different ways of, of thinking about heritage values. So it, it's been a really uh, informative process for all of us, not only for, you know, the, the now this, we're into the second cohort, but certainly for those of us who are, you know, teaching mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the program. And it, it, it speaks to, you know, something that uh, I think is apparent to many of us, and that is that Heritage, the, 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 the system of heritage management in British Columbia, to take one example, isn't working. Mm-mm. And something has to change uh, that the government has certainly respons- certain responsibilities here to facilitate such change if they are so willing to accept that there is need for change, and that may not be... What would you offer? What advice would you offer? Well, I mean, that, that's part of what needs to go on. Okay. But the other thing is that uh, archaeology and heritage management in the province is changing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, both the archaeological landscape and the heritage management landscape are, I think, going to be quite different five or ten years from now than, um, uh, than at present. That, no, it's good. It actually leads me to another question. I'm, I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about we'll use your work in sort of long term and looking at the landscape. And it seems like when you're talking about you were in the new archaeology when you were in school, it seems like we're now in a new, whatever it is, we want to call it, phase of what's happening here in BC. And it is kind of exciting because there are projects we work on where we're trying to sort of drive the subtext of sort of like engendering change with the HCA and with the government on behalf of First Nations communities, serving as sort of vessels for the type of archaeology they want to see. Do you see heritage or do you see archaeology as framed in human rights now? If you think about UNDRIP and you think about sort of the, the, the bigger court cases, the bigger global scale, like can you apply that to BC? Do you personally see archaeology or as heritage being more about 
social or economic or environmental justice or, or human rights? I mean, that's part of it. That's one level of it. But, you know, we can't simplify it I'm just down to it. that. Okay. Um, but that is, you know, that is certainly uh, an area that I, I've been working in for the last few years. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that, that heritage needs to be acknowledged as a basic human right, that all peoples have a right to uh, have access to, care for, benefit from their own heritage. Uh, I would also contend that the loss of heritage sites by uh, intentional destruction, by erosion, by uh, looting, or by neglect Mm -hmm. is a kind of violence that detrimentally affects the heritage holders, whomever they are because it's taking away something from them that's irreplaceable. And for, for indigenous peoples, uh, heritage is you know, part of who they are. It's not the same for uh, you know, most people in Western society where heritage is something that's in a museum mm-hmm. or it's the family album or <laughs> it is you know, your grandfather's watch, yeah. you know, that yeah. keepsake that connects you to, to different generations. Mm-hmm. But when you're looking at... Um, what we would call, you know, artifacts um, or, you know, archaeological sites to, you know, indigenous peoples, you need to turn that around. These are belongings of their ancestors. This is uh, a place where ancestral spirits may still reside. It's a totally different way. We're getting into the intangible now, too, a little bit there. As yes, well. we are. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're paying attention, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Continue. So, but, but this is – I don't want to cut you off. You want to keep on a line there. You seem like you were rolling. You were hot. <laughs> but there is a problem the way the holders of archaeology – those who control it provincially, those the regulators and those who carry it out, the way we sort of uh, the way it's identified and the way it's enacted, it's it's a hard, it's completely materialist. Materialism is intangible. We're not dealing with the intangible at all. Do you have solutions, or you have suggestions, or you have different ways of sort of approaching that within this province? Well, if, I mean, if you look at how heritage is measured, how it's evaluated, how it is. Um, examined for, you know, throughout the history of, of, of archaeology, it's been on material culture. Mm-hmm. And not surprisingly, because if you're looking at evidence of human behavior, you know, you need to have that, that physical, mm-hmm. you know, connection. And, and this, you know, holds forth uh, as archaeology is being used in land claims mm-hmm. or in other ways that you know, the court will say, you know, show us the evidence that people have been at this location for however many, you know, thousands of years. But this is also a, a severe limitation um, regarding what really constitutes heritage. Mm-hmm. Because the way I look at it, you know, heritage is objects, it is places you know, those material or tangible manifestations. Mm -hmm. But none of that has any value without the meaning Mm -hmm. that is ascribed to these. Right, yeah. So heritage is places and and objects, but it is also stories and knowledge and 
They're imbued with All it. of these other intangible aspects that uh, are really ultimately what we're talking about here. Because mm-hmm. otherwise we're talking about pieces of stone, pieces of clay. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you get back to the so what question. Mm-hmm. But when you start to say that, you know, this is the touchstone of my heritage, that it connects me to my ancestors going back for however long it matters. That is something that is readily accessible to First Nations peoples here in British Columbia. Mm -hmm. But for all of us white guys, Mm -hmm. our heritage is somewhere else. And for the most part, we have a very tenuous relationship with it. You know, we could look at, you know, archaeological sites or objects from wherever, you know, we came from. And we could say, you know, that's my heritage, you know, the, you know, the, the, the Parthenon, mm-hmm. you know, that was built by my ancestors. You take a certain pride and so on. But we're several steps removed from that. For sure. Yeah. But when you look at something that is the basis for your identity um, as an indigenous person, that's a totally different equation and one that people, you know, the, the you know, white folks in settler countries don't have a clue what it's really all about. And, you know, I could personalize this in a way because, you know, coming back to that, my origin story, as you yeah. put it, <laughs> that announcement at the dinner table when I was eight years old as mm-hmm. become an archaeologist, uh, about 15 or so years ago after... Um, you know, our parents had died. My brother and I are getting the family house ready to put on the market in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're down in the basement and we're taking off some paneling that was on the side of the cellar stairs. And I pulled it off and there written in black magic marker was the word obsidian. <laughs> <laughs> and that Why? for me was the most important archaeological discovery I've ever made in my life because that is my heritage. That was my handwriting Mm. when I was just that young kid. So it's (laughs) something that is so rare for us as, you know, outsiders to ever, you know, have that opportunity. But in working with, with, you know, many indigenous peoples in the field, where they're doing archaeology on their own territory and they're finding the belongings of their ancestors. And I've never seen such pride shown when, you know, they have discovered, you know, found something that is so meaningful to them. Yeah. Um, to speak to that, we had we had Wayne on, uh, not the last episode, Wayne Point from Musqueam, uh, talking about uh, how he recovered uh, Kaiskum from the Bank oh, of the Fraser. And yeah. it's, yeah, it's, can't even imagine. And we, all of us, the three of us, have experienced that working in the field alongside communities, um, both here in British Columbia and, and also internationally around the world. There is something to that when you're working side by side, side excavating, finding things, ta- and then stopping and talking about it. And then it's kind of a cool exchange because there's like an exchange of the communities telling their stories, and then you kind of showing them in the profile or telling a story that way too. There's this real interesting sort of mixture that happens in the field that I really love that I wish could be part of. It should be part of every experience when you're out there. Did I ever tell you guys about Teleni in Tonga? Uh, I know Teleni. Yeah. Well, you know because you you worked there. Mm. But we were we were just digging auger tests uh, all over this peninsula, 
and we found this tiny little shirt of pottery in one of them and it had like that uh infill triangle design mm-hmm. and so yeah like pick up the pottery i hold it i say like hey look Talani, check this out we got uh you know some, some stuff here and he looked at it and then he like lifted up his, the sleeve of his t-shirt and on his arm he had the exact banding as, like, a, as, as a tattoo, tattoo. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was on this pottery that was like two thousand years old and yeah to see his face and in that moment it was yeah hmm. All right, I have a question, uh, a lightweight, a softball, as they say in the journalism industry. Uh, <laughs> most interesting and favorite field accommodation? I know you've done work in a number of locations across North America. I just imagine that you've had tents, you've had maybe canvas tents, you've had motels, you've had all the whole, the gamut. The, the best, the most memorable accommodations <clears throat> was a two-story farmhouse mm-hmm. that we rented in Falls Village, Connecticut, for the Robin Swamp Project. Oh, wow. We had a very large crew. Um, we had rather jovial dinners out on the porch. <laughs> Is that a euphemism? There must have been 10 or 15 living at the house, and then you know, we, we had crew members living nearby who would come over for dinner. Oh, yeah. Nice. Um, there were some memorable parties, mm-hmm. you know, dancing to the talking heads, and <laughs> the porch pillar fell off. <laughs> not, not a supporting pillar? Well, it, it was a supporting <laughs> pillar, yeah. but it, it held. And... The house was right next to the town dump. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so every Friday oh. <laughs> after work, we'd go over there because it was only open certain days of the week, and we would just find the neatest things. <laughs> Archaeologists in a dump. In a dump. Off work. Where do we go? <laughs> what is, what is, you brought up Talking Heads. Why is David Byrne such a big influence? Talking Heads are also mentioned in your acknowledgments in your dissertation. You really? love Yeah. He's, he gives a shout-out to the talking heads. Well, as, as David Byrne says, all facts come with point of view. <laughs> okay. I just know. I just know when he hits himself in a... The big suit. <laughs> the big suit. <laughs> and he dances with the lamp. Yeah. Is music... You know, we talked about earlier, you were talking about, you know, what is the purpose of archaeology. That could be a question asked of art, musicians, but does music and art, do they, do they serve as a, a muse for you when you're doing archaeology? Is, does music inspire you? <laughs> I'm trying to get to the real George here. Uh, breaking down the facade of Professor. I mean, I listen to music all the time. Now, if you've ever walked by my I, office. You do, you <clears throat> do. In the field, less so, because you know, generally there's no electricity. And, <laughs> right. You know, and batteries you know, gave out a long time ago. Right. <clears throat> I have a question. You want me to go with this one? What is it? A, a, real, right. a real question. A real question. <laughs> so, we ever hold a trial again? It's been, what, 15, 16? 14 years. 14 years since you've done some real dirt archaeology. Five months. Five months, yeah. <laughs> and 22 days. <laughs> You're keeping... Just keeping into the wall now. <laughs> like obsidian, yeah. Yes, I, I want to get back into the field. It's something that I, I miss dearly. And at the same time, um, I feel that much of what I've been doing, you know, these last 14 or so years with the iPinch project mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, other initiatives is 
more valuable because mm-hmm. it's working to change things. Um, in other mm-hmm. words, that I'm no longer the primary beneficiary of what I'm doing. I'm trying to, you know, make archaeology more accessible, mm-hmm. more democratic, to um, make it a tool for First Nations peoples and other indigenous peoples to use as they see mm-hmm. um, fit. And that was, you know, what was so rewarding about the, the 15 years I spent on the Camelot Indian Reserve, you know, teaching archaeology there. Mm-hmm. It was really important. I mean, that really, that was the impetus for sort of changing your whole trajectory, coming from sort of this sort of really positivist scientist and and really reevaluating and rethinking how archaeology needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, it, it was, it was, you know, transformative. Right. Because you know, if I stayed in New England, um, you know, I would have, you know, just, you know, been focusing on early post-glacial land use and the kinds of things I was doing, uh, including cultural resource management. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, moving to Kamloops, um, you know, changed things substantially. And it, it's not that I gave up doing, you know, more traditional kinds of archaeology. It's still there. Mm-hmm. You know, I still... And very much oriented to cultural historical and, 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 and uh, processual archaeology, if you want to use those terms. Mm-hmm. But I've, I've added, you know, much more, um, you know, whether we're looking in terms of a more socially responsive archaeology or community archaeology or indigenous archaeology. Um, you know, these have uh, added new questions for me to engage with. Uh, working directly with the Senate communities and for them um, to ensure that, you know, they are the primary beneficiaries of research on their own heritage. And this doesn't uh, compromise the integrity of archaeology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, archaeology is a really flexible kind of entity. And to think that it isn't is really short-sighted. Mm-hmm. George, who are some of your uh, favorite influences in archaeology and, and and maybe who are your colleagues that you really enjoy working with when you're thinking through some of these issues to use archaeology as sort of this flexible tool? The um, In terms of influences, I mean, one of the things that uh, I did years ago and I share in my archaeological theory class is my um, archaeological genealogy mm. where you know going back through my various instructors supervisors you know through time um, you know I then identify their mm-hmm. instructors and mm-hmm. so on going all the way back to Boaz yeah but the influences that are really mo- most meaningful to me are not those that sort of shaped, you know, shaped me in my formative years, you know, both instructors and, and colleagues, but uh, individuals that I've had the, the opportunity, uh, really the honor to work with um, in the last 15 years, uh, Larry Zimmerman, mm-hmm. Randy McGuire, T.J. Ferguson, Chip Colwell, uh, Sonia Adelaide, mm-hmm. uh, Claire Smith, um, and, and many others who have really had the gumption and been fearless in, you know, standing up to colleagues mm-hmm. uh, who didn't get it, 
and some colleagues who still don't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I remember I was a grad student and I came across um, Larry Zimmerman's article in, I think it was the late 1980s, um, Made Radical by My Own. Mm. And that article really struck me. Um, you know, he was writing about his uh, experiences in dealing with you know, archaeologists who now saw him as the enemy mm-hmm. because he was working for and working with Native Americans. And I remember where I was standing where, when I read that article. Where it was standing? just one of these, these really you know, unforgettable moments, literally. Yeah. Mm. That leads me. That's really interesting. We've talked about this a little bit amongst ourselves when we just had beers and we've talked about things. But I mean, that concern. Do you think that's a really valid concern for archaeologists to fear that they they could lose their jobs or they would be unemployed if communities did archaeology by themselves the way they wanted to do it, see it run by themselves? Because that always seems to be a subtext of some of these arguments. Maybe it's not explicit all the time, but. I don't, I don't think it's a fear so much of losing their jobs, but of losing control. The ownership and control. And, and that's, that's really the hang-up, you know, mm-hmm. because there are such inequities in, in archaeology. Um, you know, we could look at this in terms of, you know, the, the archaeologists and the descendant communities, whomever they are. Mm-hmm. And in promoting a more equitable archaeology uh, and here you have you know the terms collaboration frequently show up yeah and collaboration is it has become a buzzword in mm-hmm. the last you know 15 years or more and most people uh, use that word to uh, infer some degree of working together you know, between you know, archaeologists and you know, indigenous peoples. And that's, that's a good thing. Um, and it's something that's been very necessary. Uh, you know, it wasn't really until, you know, recent decades when, you know, Native people stopped being the laborers mm, and started yeah. to be the collaborators in, to some degree. But, and, and the majority of archaeologists, you know, see this as, you know, being valuable, something that should be done. Mm-hmm. But where you see the line, the line being drawn is when I define collaboration as full and equal decision-making. Right. And that means that the archaeologists have to give up some degree of control over the process, and that's the bottleneck. Mm-hmm. So it's not that they don't want, mm-hmm. you know, you know their, their indigenous colleagues to work with them or to make some decisions, but to, you know, make, to, to, le- to level out the playing field generally requires giving up more, you know, the, the majority of the control. And, mm-hmm. and while that's changing in, in particular instances, you know, whether at the level of individuals or companies, mm-hmm. um, it is still, you know, really a, a, a concern to me. Mm-hmm. And even, I mean, it, it does seem like it's changing more, to be more, there's more equity there with, within the community of archaeology and descendant <laughs> communities, but 
where it, there seems to be continued problems would then be at the higher levels, like of government and regulatory bodies, whether how they view descended community members, uh, how they view the indigenous archaeologies from their perspectives. It seems like the H the Heritage Conservation Act and the way the regulations are set up, it doesn't really encapsulate or embody an indigenous perspective, and that's another fighting ground or a battleground that's going to have to. Ha- I don't know if that's a proper term, probably not, but that that's going to have to have a discussion to see where we're going to make headway. But I mean, you three are are <clears throat> illustrative of where things are going because, for one thing, indigenous archaeology was already out there on the archaeological landscape. You know, as you began to learn about archaeology, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so what you know, it's something that was sort of accepted. You know, it's just <laughs> another flavor of archaeology. Yeah, but also think about. The companies that you are working for, mm-hmm. and Leila Twash is a native-run company, mm-hmm. and there are very, very, very few of those. Mm-hmm. You know, when it's run by the nation, mm-hmm. and Cleonza is one of the most social responsible companies that I'm aware of, and you know, I've, I've told this to Jenny, you know, Lewis many times that I'm, you know, so proud of what what she and the company have been doing. Because it is really reaching out and working with the communities, um, being aware of their needs, while also, you know, working through that legislative jungle of what do you actually have to do to, you know, get the permits, to get the reports in, to get the province to sign off on this. That's nice of you, George. Yeah, that's, that's a huge compliment. Thank you. But I think, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of work ahead, and we're just, I mean, you're right. The the flavor was out there, and I guess. Ian, did you want to look like you? Oh, I don't want to. It does seem like there's a shift. Like, yeah, we came on the scene at a time when the kind of these, these battles had been well underway and it's kind of the major headway had already been made. So, so us just slotting into this, this pre existing movement was uh, just quite natural. And it just seems like it's continuing to go that direction. Well, it's, it's important to know your history, like the closet chickens, and to really retrace your genealogy to see where people have come before mm-hmm. and where you can go. And sort of where the landscape is. I guess, George, you've had over 20, 25 years of looking at indigenous archaeology. Do you do you see new things? Do you see it evolving? Do you see it getting stagnant, or do you, have you seen it push through? I mean, you have a sort of a longer term, a long, longer experience to look at this than us. Well, I mean, the, you know, this part part of the landscape is changing, and one of the things I've noticed is, <clears throat> you know, indigenous archaeology is being practiced everywhere. You know, whether you're looking at Africa or. Mm-hmm. or you know, with the Ainu of northern Japan and so on, um, all in very different ways. Um, and communities have different needs. So some of them are doing traditional kind of archaeology. Mm-hmm. Some of them are promoting non-invasive kind of archaeology. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, some of them are running the show. Mm-hmm. But one one trend that I've I've started to pick up on is that I think community or so-called community archaeology is now starting to eclipse indigenous archaeology that is it's eclipse in the sense of becoming more common Mm -hmm. and that's not a bad thing at all but i don't like seeing people naively equate the two Mm -hmm. that indigenous archaeology is you know community archaeology they are distinct because indigenous archaeology necessarily has a political edge Mm-hmm. And that edge has to do with, you know, issues of control, mm-hmm. issues of benefit and how those flow. 
whereas community archaeology is, uh, you know, to give a really simplistic definition, simply, you know, the community is doing archaeology, uh-huh. the community may be setting the goals, the community, community may be benefiting, and, and there's overlap <coughs> between these two uh, these two these two realms but they are nonetheless distinct mm-hmm. <clears throat> can non-indigenous archaeologists practice indigenous archaeology can men practice feminist archaeology In, indigenous archaeology no I, I've oh, sorry, so did you question to a question <laughs> what, what, what was it George say, say it again <laughs> yes I mean um, you know in the same way that men can practice <clears throat> that's feminist archaeology right. you're, no, uh, sorry I okay. catch you now I got where you're going with that. <clears throat> yes the answer is yes yes yes, yes but I, I mean that. you know and I've been involved in this you know for you know, almost 30 years now mm-hmm. um I'm not indigenous, and you know my approach is very different from those who themselves are indigenous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, my role has more more or less been a facilitator of and a promoter of indigenous archaeology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, this is this has been really good. I, I'm curious though, uh, George, do you have anything on the horizon that you're excited about, or what's next for you? What's next is is moving forward on taking what I've learned and doing more with it in the sense that I've been at many meetings with First Nations peoples and they say, we're tired of talking, we want action. And that's something that has really encapsulated much of my career for the last 15 or 20 years. It's building an archaeology, but it is also taking what we've learned and sharing it uh, ensuring that the benefits of what we've learned can benefit other people. So some of this work is in the, in, in the realm of uh, heritage as a human right. Some of it is in the realm of public education regarding cultural appropriation and how it can be avoided. And some of it is catching up on field work in, in, in Kamloops and other places I've worked. There's still questions I want to pursue uh, things I want to write, and uh, that's more than enough to keep me busy for many years to come. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, th- well, thank you so much for sitting down with us tonight, uh, letting us into your home. Uh, There's a much better studio here. Then we should adopt this as our new place. Yeah, yeah we'll be we'll be we'll be back. We're very sorry. You're just gonna find us. We don't have to your... unplug the fridge. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's that's like a fun feature though. That's oh, yeah. that's a good mm-hmm. part of the mythos. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, we'll we'll wrap it up there uh, this week uh, for the transect. I've been Cody. I've been Sean Pekinotten. Oh, I think I went out of order. <laughs> normally, you second the me. Which one I don't do we know. usually I don't know do? Anyways, okay. Ian, that's my name, Ian, and we're signing off. Uh, join us next time on the transect. <laughs> Thank you, George. Thank you, George. Thanks, George. Thank you, boys. <laughs> <laughs>